Hello and welcome to Shades of Murder. I am your host, Alita Dogma. In this podcast, I will share with you tales of true crime from around the world and throughout history. In each episode, I delve deep into each case, discussing its many layers. This is a special warning that this episode contains very graphic details of the murders that took place and some extremely obscene acts that were committed by the perpetrators. It is not designed for children to listen to. Please be cautious when and where you listen. In this podcast, I strive to share and discuss cases that not every true crime podcast and documentary show traditionally covers. To me, the lesser known stories are often more compelling, and since there is less coverage of them, this often equates to there being cases of marginalized victims and offenders. As a result, This makes them, in many respects, more important and interesting to talk about. At some point, I had planned on doing episodes on some of the most famous murders and most notorious perpetrators. But in my mind, I had envisioned covering them further down the road than fate, destiny, or even mere circumstances aligned. And I was provided with a resource that inspired me to cover two well-known serial killers, much earlier than expected. A few months ago, my boyfriend's mom reached out to me, asking if I would be interested in some books that her late uncle had written, who once had been a crime reporter. Since she knows I have a passion for true crime and have a podcast featuring tales of murder, she figured I may be interested in having them, which of course I was. When they arrived, I was overwhelmed with excitement, when I realized that her uncle, Don West, had been a criminal journalist for the San Francisco Chronicle during the 1970s, and one of the novels he wrote detailed the serial killers Edmund Kemper and Henry William Mullins. There are details within this book that I have never read or heard elsewhere. His in-depth investigation revealed information that is not found elsewhere. It is meticulously written with both the offender and the victims in mind. The recorded interviews with the serial killers, conversations with the homicide detectives, family members, and friends of those who were killed, his investigation and reporting of the crimes while they occurred, and those who knew the murderers best, were all knitted together to tell this intimate tale written by the view of a narrator. On each page, I was taken deeper and deeper into the criminals' minds, the impact of their horrifying crimes, and how the events unfolded for law enforcement and impacted the public. It is an incredibly detailed and compelling true story that is impeccably researched and written, and one which I feel honored to have been given to read and share with you in these next few episodes. During the years 1972 and 1973, the town of Santa Cruz, California, was plagued by a murderer on a seemingly endless rampage of escalating violence and brutality. The body parts of a missing and murdered young woman were found scattered amidst the cliffs of beautiful oceanscapes. A homeless man and a priest were slain. The atmosphere of free love and liberation at this time was tainted by the acts of a maniac. Law enforcement desperately hunted for the man behind these monstrous crimes. 
Little did they know that they were searching for two serial killers. This was the only time in known criminal history that two serial killers were active at the same time in the same place without any knowledge of the other. Their parents' residences were within miles of one another and they committed their murders in very close proximities. This is the story of the notorious serial killers Edmund Emile Kemper III and Henry William Mullins, whose modus operandi and motivations stemmed from completely polar directions. Edmund Emile Kemper III, whose deplorable crimes and his infamous hatred for his mother have become intimately associated with the FBI's criminal profile of a serial killer. He is a very popular serial killer across the true crime genre. He is also an offender that I find to be particularly compelling, although extremely disturbing. The other serial killer, Henry William Owens, is not as popular or should I say as commonly covered within the genre, even though he murdered more people than Edmund Kemper did. The details of this story help to understand these reasons, since their sickness, the origin of their evil, could not have been more different. But one could argue that both of their vile murders may have been preventable. Santa Cruz is one of those quintessential Northern California surf towns, sitting 70 miles south of San Francisco and 35 miles north of Monterey is the county of Santa Cruz, known for its beautiful sandy beaches and redwood trees in the nearby mountains. Across the time span of one year, 21 murders and 13 crime scenes would paint this beautiful scenic beach town of Santa Cruz with blood and hold it captive by two serial killers. The perpetrators of these murders could not have been more opposite in every respect. There was Henry William Mullins, a smaller-than-average man who was known for his intellectual, esoteric ramblings. Then there was Edmund Emile Kemper III, who dwarfed Mullins and almost every other man in any room he entered. With his massive frame, he stood six feet nine and weighed almost 300 pounds. Edmund Emile Kemper III, in stark contrast to Mullins, was known for those who crossed his path as being personable, warm, even funny. He was well known for riding his motorcycle, drinking beer, and chatting it up with the police officers who frequented his favorite bar, the jury room. Growing up, Herbert William Mullins was nominated most likely to succeed in high school. He was successful in academics, sports, and many classmates' mothers would have been more than proud to have him date their daughters. But once Herbert Mullins graduated and attended college, he became more and more immersed in the psychedelic drug scene and obsessed with Eastern philosophy. Within a few years, he had dropped out of college, could not hold down a job, and was arrested for drug possession. His dependence on drugs and his ever-increasingly erratic behavior triggered his downfall. 
Edmund Emile Kemper III was not well known by too many, but those in his circle affectionately called him Guy. He was called Big Ed at the bar, or even Forklift at his job, due to his massive size and his ability to carry two bags of cement under his arms, which weighed more than 90 pounds each, without any effort. Edmund Kemper worked for the California Division of Highways. His mother was a college administrative assistant and never told the truth to her friends about where she and her son had been all of those years. It was reported how neighbors frequently heard the mother and son fight, since his mother, Clarnell Strandberg, who had long since been divorced from Edmund's father, was a very large, boisterous, and verbally cruel woman. She towered over most people at six feet tall and was almost as thick as her only said Edmund. Her vicious tongue had brought Edmund to tears in front of more than one of his friends. Edmund had recently broken his arm in a motorcycle accident and as a result had been spending more time at his mother's house. This only escalated the negativity between the two and he spent most of his time drinking at the jury room bar, talking guns and showing off his strength amongst the patrons there, many of whom were law enforcement. Edmund Kemper had dreamed of becoming a police officer, but his enormous stature disqualified him. Apparently, there used to be high restrictions for law enforcement officers, so they did not appear too intimidating to the public. Their reign of blood over Santa Cruz County began on a sunny but crisp Sunday on May 7, 1972 in Berkeley, California, when two pretty roommates from Fresno State College declined a ride from their friends who wanted to take them to Palo Alto and Stanford. Mary Ann Pesh had insisted it would be much more fun if she and her friend Anita Luchessa hitchhiked there instead. Only the year prior, Marianne had been living in Europe with her family. During the seven years she resided overseas, she called Germany home, and she had developed quite a taste for new experiences. To put it simply, Marianne Pesch came from great wealth. Her father had been promoted to International Operations Director of the ABEX Aerospace Division. Over her seven years living in Europe, Mary Ann had spent time skiing, hiking, traveling to the Mediterranean seas, and lounging on the beaches in the south of France. She and her family were very privileged, and very naive in ways, living inside a bubble of adventure and luxury. Anita Luchessa's upbringing was quite the opposite. Growing up in Modesto, California, she was the third generation of almond and peach tree farmers. Her family was close-knit and very protective of their daughters. This was the first weekend since she began attending Fresno State that Anita had ventured off and not returned to her father's ranch, as she did every weekend. Although coming from quite the opposite backgrounds, Anita and Marianne had instantly bonded over their mutual love of skiing. The girls waited and waited now, holding a sign that said, Stanford, their thumbs stuck out for a ride. Few cars were on the road that afternoon, and those who did pass them looked at them with judgment and even fear for the girls and their eyes. 
And then a yellow Ford coupe pulls over to the side. The girls asked the driver if he was going to Stanford, and he said he was headed that way, so they got inside his car. But then the man began to drive them towards Pleasanton, which was in the opposite direction of Stanford. Miles he drove, and then he suddenly turned down a dirt road, which led to some orchards, with his gun unknowingly tucked underneath his leg. Marianne Pesh wanted to know what he wanted from them. He replied that they know exactly what he wants, and if they comply and don't start any trouble, he will not have to harm them. Edmund then led the fair-haired girl, Anita, to the trunk of his car. He pulled a gun to her head and demanded she crawl in. She did as she was told. Edmund then returned to the vehicle, opened the passenger's side door, and forced Mary Ann to go into the back seat. She attempted to stop him from placing handcuffs on her, but he was too quick and restrained her in seconds. With her hands handcuffed to the seat belt hook, a petrified Marianne did everything she could to prevent him from placing a plastic bag over her face, but she could not. Edmund slipped the bag around her head and attempted to tie a cloth around her neck. Mary Ann squirmed and fought him off, succeeding in biting a hole through the bag. This angered Edmund, and he shoved her face into the seat cushion and pulled out a blade. He dug the eight-inch bladed knife deep into her back. Mary Ann continued to fight, screaming and twisting her body around He stabbed her in the sides and she twisted more. This time, Edmund Kemper had no recollection of how many times he stabbed the young girl, but she had at last stopped screaming. There were still signs that she was alive though, so he picked her up and slashed her throat. Mary Ann was no longer making sounds or twisting around. Edmund Kemper became panicked. Mary Ann had been screaming for her life, and there was no way that no one had heard her cries for help. Rapidly, he opened the trunk to find Anita terrified in the corner. He slashed at her with the knife and missed. Anita screamed at the top of her lungs as Edmund continued to attack her. He stabbed her face, her mouth, and her chest until finally she had stopped fighting and screaming. Slamming the trunk lid shut, he swore that he heard voices raised and concerned in the near distance. He began to panic when he went around to the passenger side door and found it locked. He checked his pockets, but the keys were not there. He rushed over the trunk to find it securely shut. Edmund's mind began to race into sheer panic until he realized that the driver's side was not locked. He sighed a big breath of relief and spent a few moments gathering his thoughts and checking the crime scene for any potential signs they had been there. Underneath the car on the passenger side lay one of the girl's wallets, likely Mary Ann's, with a drop of blood on it. He also then noticed that the front of his pants had a smear of her blood on them. Throwing a blanket over Marianne's butchered body, which had slipped from the back seat to the floorboard between the seats, 
Edmund breathed in and out deeply and took off down the road. It was nearly dark when Edmund arrived at 916 Union Street, but there were other residents in the downstairs garage, so he had to drive around for another 15 minutes. When he returned, there was only one person there, so he casually grabbed some camping gear from the back seat, hiding the blood on his pants with a duffel bag, and headed to his apartment. He washed his hands and face thoroughly, but elected that he would like to have Marianne's body with him, so he returned with his blood-spattered clothes still on. Once at his vehicle, Emmett decided that he would pick Marianne up, wrap her closely inside the blanket, and head upstairs. When he arrived at the door, the knife which he had killed her with had fallen between a fold in the blanket and made an alarmingly loud sound as it hit the ground. Then he heard the sound of an oncoming vehicle that could be heading toward the garage. In a panic, he rushed back to his vehicle with Mary Ann's body and threw himself to the ground, holding her corpse in the blanket. When the driver appeared, who was one of his neighbors, Edmund slowly raised himself off the ground and followed him to the stairs to the upper floor level where his neighbor saw the bloody blade lying on the ground. He asked him with some concern in his voice if that was his, to which Eminem replied that it was. The man promptly let himself into his own apartment while Edmund waited and listened to his movements. When there was no phone call made or any other sound of urgency or fear, he felt safe enough to leave the neighbor's door returned to the garage to collect Marianne's body, and brought her back inside. There he removed her clothes and laid her inside his bathtub. He took a knife and began to cut away at her body, first decapitating her and then placing different body parts of hers inside a cardboard box. Everything about the night had been a disaster, but he had made it happen, and now he had his trophy. This would mark his first successful murder and possession of two young, pretty rich girls. Exactly the kind of girls whom his mother swore he could never have. It would be only four months later when another young woman would face the monster that had become Edmund Emil Kemper III. On September 14, 1972, around 7 in the evening, Aiko Koo was heading out from her mother's home in Berkeley to head to the Mission District in San Francisco, where she attended dance classes. She kissed her mother goodbye, and instead of using the bus fare her grandfather had given her, which had been more than twice the amount she would need to get into the city and back, she stuck her thumb out to hitch a ride instead. Aiko Koo had been strictly forbidden by her mother to hitchhike, and she had been warned many times of the potential dangers it carried. Perhaps this is exactly why she wanted to hitchhike instead of taking the safe and parent-approved transportation of riding the bus. Aiko Koo lived a modest life and was barely middle class. She was the daughter of a foreign language publicist at UC Berkeley's library and lived with her mother and grandfather in a run-down, musty apartment. Her mother was creative and resourceful, though, with a sewing machine, and she did her best to keep herself and her daughter relatively stylish. 
She was also borderline obsessed with crafting Aiko into a princess. Ever since Aiko was four years old, her mother had a vision for her daughter. She enrolled her in ballet, and then at eight years old, she had her learn the piano and Korean dance. She draped her little girl in gossamer, silk, and velvet, in lavish gold brocade and intricate designs. Aiko would perform at special shows and events that represented her Korean heritage, which had been on her father's side. Her mother was of Latvian descent, but her father had abandoned them when he discovered she was pregnant. So it is interesting that she cared so much about the little girl acknowledging and representing her deadbeat dad's culture more than her own. She and her mother were very close and only recently had been having some tiffs. Aiko was 15 years old, and she had become increasingly more rebellious. One day when she returned from dance class, she showed her mom a ticket, saying that even though she didn't have a car, she had a parking ticket. Her mother was confused, and then she became horrified. When Aiko admitted that the ticket was from a guy whom she and a girlfriend had hitched a ride back with one day. Then and there, she was forced to swear to her mother that she would never hitchhike again. She had attempted on deaf ears to sway Aiko to stay home that night from dance school to rest up for a big recital she had two days later on Saturday. But Aiko insisted that she attend a dance class. This was the last night she ever saw her 15-year-old daughter. Pretty little Aiko and her sign with a red SF for San Francisco caught the attention of Edmund Kemper driving by. She was the 17th girl he had picked up. For most of them, he had just fantasized about killing and raping their dead bodies while he drove them to their destination, but this one felt special. He had been a bit disappointed, though, when she shared with him her young age. Edmund Kemper had hoped for another college girl. He drove into the city, purposely missing the signs of the road they needed to take. Aiko began to get antsy and impatient with him. He informed her that he didn't think she would make it to her dance class that night. Aiko burst into tears, ducking her head and begged the massive older man to please not kill her. Edmund had had enough, and he pulled out his three fifty seven Magnum and stuck it in her ribs multiple times until she stopped crying. He told Aiko that he had set out to kill himself that night, and when he picked her up, he was going to take her life as well, but he liked her and didn't feel like hurting her anymore. He said he just wanted to spend some time with her and talk, and as long as she shut her mouth and did what he wanted... She would stay alive. The only way this could happen, though, he said, is if he shoved a gag in her mouth and tied her up so he could bring her back to his apartment without causing any problems. To this, Aiko began to sob again. Edmund jabbed her with his gun again and told her that she would behave and not get any ideas about trying to flag down a cop or anyone else, because he would have to kill them. And how would she feel about taking away someone's husband, and likely a father from someone? Aiko decided to behave. 
Once Edmund found a deserted enough road to go down, he instructed the young girl to grab the medical tape from his glove department. Edmund's hands shook as he tore into the tape, and Iko even joked with him about who the nervous one was now. He placed the tape over her mouth, making sure it was on there snugly, and told her to hop in the back seat. When he walked over to the passenger side door, he realized that it was locked, and the gun was under the front seat, which was easily within Iko's grasp. Edmund began to panic, thinking, that's it, it's over, and he would be dead soon. But instead, Iko casually opened the door to let him inside. Edmund forced her to lie on her stomach while he tied her hands behind her back. When he flipped her back over, he placed his hand over the patch on her mouth and squeezed her nostrils, cutting off any air. She lashed out at him, struggling to twist her tiny body away from him. Iko's feet swung at the window and his head until she finally blacked out. Then Iko was suddenly conscious again. She was kicking and twisting and doing everything possible to survive, but Edmund held his massive fingers over her nostrils once more. This time he counted to 200 before releasing his hold. Her fighting him as hard as she did had really excited him, and he jumped on her lifeless body in a sexual frenzy with both of the clothes still on. At some point, he hallucinated that she was still alive and grabbed her shawl and strangled her to death. He then straightened her clothes, placed Iko in the trunk, tightly wrapping her inside a blanket, and began the drive back into town. When he spotted a tavern on the way, he thought it may be a good idea to stop in, have a few drinks, calm his nerves down a bit before driving back to his mother's house. He had a very pleasant evening with his mom that night, and for once, they did not fight. On October 13, 1972, the body of a brutally beaten man who appeared to be homeless was discovered by a hiker in the bushes. There was no identity on the man except for a piece of paper from the county hospital with the name Lawrence Wright. Sheriff's records revealed he had been arrested on a drunken disorderly charge, but other than that, nothing else was known about the man, except he had a sister in Chicago listed as contact. The Chicago police informed the Santa Cruz Department that no one named Lawrence White was listed at the address on file. When the police talked to the local wino community, as they were referred to at the time, the others only knew him as quote-unquote Whitey, a seemingly nice old guy who worked in the field sometimes so he could afford his next bottle of wine. No one knew him to have any enemies. Although the homicide case remained open, it may as well have been already closed, as the murdered old homeless man was quickly forgotten about. It was one rainy night in mid-October that Herbert Williams Mullins had come upon a random old homeless man who was alone, and he decided to beat him to death with a baseball bat. There was no personal motive or vendetta. Herbert Mullins just wanted them to stop bothering him. He would have rather sacrificed a deer, and he was confident enough in his skills. 
that he could have tracked and killed one, but he hoped that the death of this man would satisfy the voices for a while. But it didn't for very long. Only two weeks later, on the afternoon of October 24th, 1972, Herbert Williams Mullins would find another sacrifice. Mary Margaret Guilfoyle, who was 23 years old, was running to the bus stop to make a 3.30 interview for an English teaching job, but Jess missed it. She felt she had no other choice but to hitchhike there because that was the only way she could make it in time. It was important because she and her boyfriend, Jeff, really could use the extra money. Attractive, tall, and slender with long, dark hair, Mary was eye-catching in her snug red knit dress, standing on the side of the road, looking for a ride. Herbert Mullins pulled off the side to pick her up before she even heard his station wagon beside her. The driver was a young guy, probably about her age, with thick, dark hair and long eyelashes many girls would envy. They didn't talk to one another, and Mary just looked out the window. Noticing the sign now available for rent had finally been placed at the fancy new apartment complex they had been building in her neighborhood. Then suddenly, she turned toward the driver, having felt a very sharp pain in her side. Without warning, when her head had been facing the window, Herbert Williams Mullins had stabbed Mary in the chest and was now slowly withdrawing the blade. When he slashed at her again, Mary tried to defend herself but missed hitting him and instead reached desperately for the door handle. Then the knife plunged deeply into her back. As she frantically tried to open the passenger side door, she was stuck and could not move as Herbert had a hold of her by her long hair. Driving with one hand on the wheel and the other gripping the young woman's hair, Herbert slowed the vehicle down. Mary's body fell to the floorboard as she withered in pain, dying. Herbert Williams Mullins felt satisfied and relieved that he had so easily answered their call this time to kill someone. This one meant something. Herbert Mullins had recently been consuming the biography of Michelangelo and was fascinated by his knowledge of the human body through dissection. He drove off to the mountains behind his parents' house, which was desolate and quiet enough for him to be able to open her up undisturbed. All he could hear was the sound of the trees and the roaring of the creek. So he pulled Mary's body from the station wagon and tossed it down a hill. He then walked down the hill and then dragged the corpse a while until he came upon a barricade crafted of driftwood and tree trunks where he could have more privacy. Before he began to dissect her, he meditated in the yoga lotus position for a while. Then he first removed the red shoe that remained from her right foot. The other shoe must have fallen off while he dragged her. He then cut away her dress with his knife and made the first incision under her rib cage across her stomach. Jeff Talmary's boyfriend had become quite perturbed and anxious that she was not home yet when he got back from work. When she never came home that night and still did not show up the following morning, he knew something was very wrong. Mary had not stayed out all night without letting him know where she was. 
Jeff called all of her friends, but no one had heard or seen Mary since the day before. Her boss at Cabrillo College also told Jeff that Mary was a no-show for work. This was not at all like Mary's character to disappear on him and not show up for her job. Granted, things had not been the greatest between the couple, but Jeff couldn't comprehend that she would leave town with another guy. She had also left all of her personal belongings behind, like her hairbrush, toothbrush. Nothing was missing, except for Mary. Jeff heard from Dan Young, Mary's boss at Cabrillo, that no one matching her appearance had been on the bus, that she should have been coming home from campus. Then he went to the police station, where they were of no help since she was an adult and there were no signs of anything necessarily wrong. Jeff visited the Sentinel newspaper, hoping they would share her having gone missing, but they didn't think it was worth their time. Instead, Jeff paid them to place a missing persons ad with information about Mary. Her fellow employees offered to help him hire a private investigator to locate her. Bill Tubbs was a former policeman and now a private investigator for the last eight years. He posted flyers all over the town, which asked if anyone had seen her get into a car that day. Everyone he talked to concluded that Mary had been hitchhiking that day and had ignored the earlier warnings from her boyfriend about doing so. Two weeks of tips led to investigator Tubbs, informing Jeff and her boss that most likely she was dead in the hills somewhere. Father Henry Antoine Torme was born to be a man of the cloth. The little French and Italian orphan boy whose parents had died when he was five years old during World War I was raised by the church. By eight years old, he knew he wanted to be a priest. He also loved music, and together these passions led him to become the musical director for the Archdiocese of Marseille in France. This was a dream come true for him. He was a leader for other young orphan boys, and he found the Les Petites Chanteurs de Lazare. By the time he was 51, the endless work of administration, composing, and direction of the tours around Europe and the United States had led him to have some serious health problems. Doctors warned him that he must slow down. To this news, he moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, where some of his relatives lived. After a few different church assignments, he settled in at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Los Gatos in 1964. From time to time, he was faced with theft, vandalism, and other delinquent behavior by the local youth, and he was known for his temper. When one young man stepped out of line, Father Terme berated him so badly that he later received a nasty and threatening letter. He didn't think much of it, though, because he was far too important to others to focus on some young, unstable hooligan. Then, on November 2, 1972, which was in the Christian faith, All Souls Day, that changed. It was an especially hectic day for the 64-year-old priest Terme, who had held three masses that morning, visited two convalescent homes, and performed a graveside service. He later had lunch with a fellow priest, Father Howley. About 3.30 that afternoon, he decided to return to the church to see if anyone was waiting for him in the confessionals. 
he sat waiting in the dark small confessional instead of his room where he usually waited. Father Torme never heard anyone enter the church. The doors of the confessional were violently thrown open by a young man holding a long hunting knife. The priest attempted to grab the knife away from him, but he failed, and Herbert Mullins plunged the blade deep into the priest's chest beneath the ribcage. At that time, a middle-aged parishioner named Margaret Reed entered the church for confession and heard a startling groan. She then saw a young man clothed in all black and boots, pounding on the back of Father Tremé. Mrs. Reed paused, frozen for a second, screamed, and then took off for the rectory to get help. Herbert Mullins never heard the woman scream because he was too focused on the nuisance the priest had become for him. He had fallen in such a way that his legs were twisted, blocking his closing of the confessional door. Herbert Mullins finally gave up and dropped Father Torme to the floor and left the church. He had answered their demand to kill once again, and this time he deeply hoped that this would satisfy their voices for a little longer. Herbert Mullins had purposely chosen a liar of society, this man of the church who had represented all of the lies he had been told and fed his entire life, especially by the Catholic Church. Father Howley entered the church shortly after Herbert had fled the scene, looking down at the man whom he had lunched with a mere hours earlier, who was now lying in a pool of his own blood. His friends all believed he would make it. But Father Torme died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. A manhunt for the killer began immediately. Police searched throughout the neighborhood and went house to house to conduct interviews. No one had seen or heard anything strange or suspicious that day. Bushes, trees, and shrubs were carefully looked through, calmed by the crime scene investigators, but no weapon was ever located. A shoddy and vague sketch of the perpetrator was released to the public. When the parishioners arrived that evening, they were shocked, saddened, and horrified to discover police officers at the church's now-closed doors who informed them that there had been a murder and that Father Torme had been killed. One young man fitting the generic description was questioned by police, but he was let go once his friends confirmed his whereabouts during the time of the attack. The young man who had written the threatening letter was also tracked down, but he was also deemed a dead end. The priest's murder drew in the faithful from everywhere. Some came from very far away who wanted to visit the church to show respect and honor to the slain father. One man who was 71 years old and who had been on his sickbed used the rest of his social security money to take a bus from Las Salinas to Los Gatos with his wife so he could pay tribute to Father Tomé. According to witnesses at the church, this sick old man dropped to his knees at the door of the church, shuffled his way down to the altar, and knelt over to kiss the dried blood spot 
that remained on the confessional door. Father Torme had officially become a martyr. Most of the evidence collected by criminologists was not beneficial to the investigation, but there was one good fingerprint that had been found on the door of the confessional. However, since it was only a partial match and technology in this area was severely limited at this time, fingerprint analysis would begin the painstakingly long task of comparing 50,000 prints in countless combinations to the incomplete print. Two volunteers would carry on with this effort into the following year with no results. These were the horrific murders that would mark the year 1972. The following year, these two serial killers would leave so many innocent bodies and body parts along their trails of blood that the city of Santa Cruz, California would once be known as the murder capital of the world. Thank you so much for listening to part one of A Tale of Two Serial Killers. I hope you have enjoyed hearing about this horrific piece of Santa Cruz history and have learned a few new things about these two infamous serial killers. Until next time, stay safe and watch out for Shades of Murder. Happening in the streets, next door, especially inside your own home. Shades of Murder is created, researched, written, and edited by Alita Dogma. Music courtesy of Pixabay by Ashot Danilian. <laughs>